Christ surrounding me, Christ in me, and Christ through me. So let's look first at Christ surrounding me. The first thing we know is he is in front of us and he is behind us. I think of it as a north and south kind of orientation. The psalmist said, you hem me in behind and before, which may sound smothering, but then he goes on to say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. So I believe there are several meanings to this concept of Christ surrounding me and being in front of us and behind us. The first one is that he went first. He led the way. John 1.14 tells us that the word became flesh and made dwelling among us. In other words, Christ lived a human life from infancy to adulthood just like we do. He experienced the joys and agonies, both little and great, of being alive on this planet. On our recent trip to the Holy Land, we went on a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. It was a cold and raw and rainy and windy morning, the kind of day in which the senses come alive. As the boat rocked in the wind, our group leader said this, Imagine it's 2,000 years ago. Christ himself looked at this very shoreline. He smelled the rain and the fresh air and struggled to maintain his balance in a rocking boat. At that instant, I felt a bond with Christ, and it brought me to tears. It was a realization that I was in the same spot he had been, both of us fully alive to the natural beauty of our surroundings in this wonderful earth. So Christ knows what it's like here, the good and the bad of it all, including what it's like to be tempted to sin. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is all a great comfort to us, because the things we experience in life were also experienced by our Savior. I think Christ also went before us in his suffering and death. We may humanly fear these things, but we know that Jesus walked into this valley too and emerged on the other side of it to eternal life. And the glorious reality is that his priesthood has eternal benefits for those who believe. Hebrews 10, 12 to 14, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties Again and again he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when this priest, Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And if he had not gone before us in this sense, we would be doomed." The second aspect of Christ surrounding us and being in front of us, behind us, is that he leads us. Not only did he go before us, but he leads us. If you recall my sermon on sheep a few months ago, this is the essence of what a shepherd provides for the sheep in John 10. He leads the sheep from the fold of the pasture 
and back home again. And he's not merely observing their movement passively. He doesn't just point his finger in the direction of the field and says, go graze there. Instead, he leads by example. He shows the way so they can follow. In Deuteronomy 31.8, Moses tells Joshua, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Or think of the disciples. Christ said, follow me, and started walking down the road. All they had to do was keep up. The fact is that we will only follow someone we trust. For us, obedient trust is a natural response to God's leadership in our lives. Time after time, He's led us through valleys or out of harm's way or beside quiet waters or into paths of blessing and growth. He has proven to be trustworthy, and so we follow Him. And the third sense of Christ surrounding us is that He is our protector. Let's let the scripture speak for itself on this point. Psalm 32, 7. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. In Job 1, and here Satan is speaking to God about Job. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? And then Christ praying for us in John 17. Holy Father, Protect them by the power of your name. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you have given me. Now, I think this protection is manifested in different ways in our lives, most directly by Christ himself, but also by the angels who serve him. Let's think of the, of the shepherds, for example, and Christ being the shepherd. The main duty of any shepherd is to protect the sheep from harm. Christ talks about being the good shepherd in John 10, who literally lays his life down for the sheep, risking grave personal danger to ensure their safety. We're usually not aware of such occasions in our lives where Christ is saving us from peril, but that doesn't mean they're not happening. And he uses angels, too, to protect us. Psalm 103.20, Praise the Lord, you as angels, you mighty ones who do His bidding. Hebrews 1.14, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Psalm 91. There's some thrilling stories buried deep in the Old Testament of God's angels protecting His chosen people. Here's just two of them. In 2 Samuel 5.22-25, David has just been chosen as king of Israel. And the Philistines heard the news. They've assembled to attack and destroy him. So from 2 Samuel 5, Once more the Philistines came up and spread out, in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, this is God to David, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly, 
because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Then there's the story of Elisha's servant found in 2 Kings 6. Elisha's been counseling the king of Israel about an imminent attack from the king of Aram. And God has revealed to the prophet all the enemy's plans. So beginning in verse 13. Go, find out where Elisha is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he's in Dothan. So the king sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Does this kind of angelic intervention happen anymore? I'd like to tell a quick story about my twin brother Stephen during his years as a Wycliffe Bible translator in the jungle of Papua New Guinea. He had a flight scheduled to his coastal village from the Wycliffe headquarters in the highlands. At the last moment he learned his helper who was going to go with him could not go. So he decided to send his cargo ahead and travel later that week. He had an awful premonition that morning about the plane. He watched it take off from the airstrip below and begin to climb, and then silence. The engine had died. The plane took a steep nosedive and disappeared from view. Stephen rushed to the airport and found the pilot sitting on the runway in shock next to the plane. It turns out a piston rod had broken and shot through the engine cover. According to the experts, situations like this are always fatal. Later that week, Stephen was talking to his local cleaning woman and asked her if she'd heard the plane stall. Yes, of course, she said, but I wasn't worried. Two angels came, one under each wing, and guided it back to the airport. It turns out all the villagers had seen two angels, but none of the North Americans had. So we can stake our claim on two verses from the Psalms. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. And from Psalm 125, 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. Now we may wonder if Christ is our protector, why do so many Bad things happen to those who follow him. In fact, nothing happens beyond his control or outside of his plan for our lives. The bad things in life are a consequence of original sin, of our own willful sin, of the weakness of our finite bodies, and the fact that Satan is the prince of this world. So Christ is all around us. We can't hide from him. Where can I go from your spirit, the psalmist said. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, 
If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. So Christ does surround us in front and behind. But then he's also beside us. Think of the east-west dimension. He's beside us as our companion and friend. I shared a confession a few months ago from this pulpit, and it's worth sharing again. In my difficult journey through cancer over the past few years, I dealt with many spiritual issues as I had to come to terms with both my mortality and the weakness of my own faith. One of the most profound of these issues was the realization that Christ didn't seem like a friend to me, even in my hours of deep need. I wanted to experience him as a friend in the same way I do any good friend, which struck me as a perfectly normal thing to do. But to be honest, it felt like his response was only silence. So I began to question what friendship with Christ really means. My issue was practical. Does Jesus love me like a friend in a human sense or not? The hymns of faith are full of alluring imagery. In the garden, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Or from the chorus, Jesus is all the world to me. When I'm sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. It makes it sound as though Jesus is always available to meet us for lunch or a long walk or a round of golf. But does it really work that way? Scripture, it turns out, has little to say about friendship. At several points, Abraham is called a friend of God because of his faith. But no other human is so identified in the Bible. Christ was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners in Matthew because he ate with them, but that was a label that his critics put on him. He didn't say it himself. Only in John 15 does the concept of human friendship arise when Jesus told his disciples, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I've called you friends. That's verse 15. But in the preceding verse, he set a strict condition on the friendship when he said, you are my friends if you do what I command. This doesn't seem like the unconditional love that's foundational for lasting human friendship. And furthermore, he didn't call us his friends. He was talking to his 12 disciples. So how did any of this apply to me? My efforts to untangle the web involved several steps. First, I set out to define what I considered to be the traits of true human friendship. Excuse me. The traits of true human friendship. And my, my long list included things like these. Friends give us advice and counsel. Friends are always there for us. They don't abandon us when we have trouble. Friends truly listen to us without judging, so we can be honest with them. Friends share in our lives. Their hearts are touched by both our pain and our joy. Friends will speak correction into our lives where it's needed, but with gentleness and love. Friends are not burdensome. Rather, their presence is communion and brings joy. 
Doesn't that sound like good friendship to you? My next step was to search the Bible for these same qualities. And it turns out that every one of them has multiple biblical reference, which will take too long to review today. So without using the language of friendship, the Bible is rich in illustrations of how God through Christ displays those very traits to us. They just aren't called friendship. Finally, I considered how Jesus was a friend to his disciples. He shared the full human condition with them for all the years of his ministry. Discomforts, dangers, laughter, tears. He devoted his time and energy to their nurture and growth. He walked the roads by their side. He instructed and counseled and admonished them. He told them that the reason he was teaching them everything he knew was because they were his friends. Could it be that this was a foreshadowing of his friendship for all believers? Being like us in every way, he both understood human friendship and modeled it and left a biblical record to assure us of his care. Indeed, he acted as our friend when he died for our sins, thereby demonstrating that the greatest love in all the world is sacrificing one's life for a friend. So there's the first point, Christ surrounding me, in front of me, behind me, beside me. Our second point is Christ in me. We've come to cherish the idea of Christ somehow being physically present in our bodies. Our hymns and choruses speak of inviting him into our hearts and allowing him to reign there. If we were asked where Christ lives, most of us would answer, in my heart. And we have the vivid imagery from Revelation 3.20 of Christ knocking at the door of our heart, reinforced by a classic painting that hung in my home and probably some of yours in childhood. Actually, Christ in me is a concept with many biblical anchor points. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Ephesians 3.16, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Galatians 4.19, Christ is being formed in you. 1 John 3.23, through his spirit, we know he lives in us. So this is an undeniable truth of scripture. God's spirit lives in our bodies. In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes this point twice using almost identical language for emphasis. In 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, who you have received from God? In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit lives in you? God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. A temple is, of course, a physical structure with stones and windows and benches. And so are our bodies, organs, muscles, blood. Somehow then, God is literally inside these bodies of ours. But we need to be careful about the analogy for several reasons. In the first place, it's a mechanical one. To say that Jesus fills us or dwells in us calls up the image of a battery-operated device, at least to me, or a pitcher of water, or a glove and a hand in it, or a balloon with air. 
It's the idea that we get powered or filled by Christ and He's the energy that keeps us moving. But if that's true, what about our own free will? When a flashlight has no battery, it's dead. A balloon without air is limp. This is just not what humans are like. We can say yes or no to God, rely on Him all the time, some of the time or none of the time, and rely on Him fully or partially. And since He's a personal God, we know He wants to have fellowship with us. What possible fulfillment could He derive from relating to us if we were puppets or robots or ventriloquist dummies? To love someone and not have that love freely and willingly returned is as bad as it gets in a human relationship. The second caution is that it can be a possessive and selfish way to look at Christ. To say I have Christ in my heart is a possessive statement. He belongs to me. I am in control. I can tuck him in a box along with other priorities and gods. I could then carry him around like a wallet. He's there if I want or need him. But otherwise, I can simply ignore him. This is a shallow and terribly dangerous view of El Shaddai, God Almighty. But we see it all too frequently in our choruses where we sing that He is mine, which sounds alarmingly close to being a statement of ownership instead of servitude. As a matter of fact, nothing we have is ours. It's all a gift from God. Charlotte Elliott said it in one of her hymns, If thou shouldst call me to resign what most I prize, it never was mine. I only yield thee what was thine. Thy will be done. And then a third caution, briefly, is that it's only a partial and incomplete analogy to say Christ is in our heart. Not only is that true, but we are in His heart. John 14, 20, Jesus said, I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. That's a rich and deep relationship. John 15, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And 1 John 4, we know that we live in Him and He in us because He's given us of His Spirit. So there are three other ways to picture this mystery, three other analogies. If you're following my outline, we're to point 2B now. And the first one is fellowship. These verses are clearly describing a two-way relationship, not a mechanical one. We're talking to someone who is talking to us. As E.W. Kenyon put it, sonship without fellowship would not satisfy the Father's heart. The whole redemptive process, he says, has been to the end that we would be God's children and that we would love Him and want to have fellowship with Him. Indeed, He wants us to have the same kind of personal relationship with us that He had with Christ when Christ walked the earth. Revelation 3.20, I alluded to it a moment ago, drives home this point. Here I am, Christ said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Christ doesn't want to simply come in, but he wants to eat with us. A personal act if there ever was one. You recall what happened after the resurrection when Jesus saw his disciples fishing offshore? He called out to them in John 21, 
come and have some breakfast. He literally fixed them breakfast. I think part of the reason for the confusion over where Christ lives can be traced to a misunderstanding about how the heart is used in Scripture. The human heart is, after all, only a muscle for circulating blood. Certainly it's critically important to our life, but so is the brain and the kidneys and the lungs. What I believe the word heart is trying to capture is the mind, or perhaps even more fundamentally, the human will. Jesus said in Mark 7.21 that evil thoughts proceed from the heart. So it's like the tongue. What we say doesn't come from our mouth, but from our inner being. The truth being conveyed here is that whatever we call it, we have a center within us, what Solomon called a wellspring of life in Proverbs 4, which we must nurture and carefully guard. Deuteronomy 6.5 says to love the Lord with all your heart. And Proverbs 3.5 says to trust the Lord with all your heart. In other words, He wants our inmost being to be completely given over to Him, undivided and pure. A second way to capture the analogy is to think of it as a partnership of what it means to have Christ in me. God says, I will be found in your life if you will allow me to have access to it. To be in Christ is to share with God. Returning to Kenyon again, we are saying to God, you've given me time and ability and training, wisdom, grace, and love. Together we are laboring to build the kingdom. That's what it means to be in Christ. And the New Testament says many things about us being a partner with Him and to being in Him. It says we are new creations and that we have redemption through His blood, that we're alive to God, that we're free, that we find the hidden treasures of God in Christ, and we have the peace of God, and we're made one with God in Christ. Now the Bible uses other words to describe this relationship or partnership too. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul calls us Christ's ambassadors, which is a very good way to describe what our role is. And in the same book, uh, chapter 6, 1, he calls us God's fellow workers. In 2 Timothy 2, we're called soldiers of Christ, and again, workers. So here we are. The words are ambassadors, fellow workers, and soldiers. The point is clear. God entrusts us with the gospel so that we will work with him to spread the good news to the whole world. Then there's one more analogy, one more way to capture the full concept of Christ in me, and it's the analogy of being in love. Reflect for a moment on the love relationships you've had over your life, your spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. In the context of that love, how did you act when you were apart from each other? For one thing, you probably thought about that special person a lot because he or she was in your heart. Your heart raced a little when you heard that person's name. You communicated in a unique and intimate way with each other. And you behaved in ways you thought your loved one would want you to behave. Isn't all this what it's like when we say Christ is in our hearts? We are saying, God, I love you. And then we're acting accordingly. <clears throat> and of course, he loves us too. The great passage in Zephaniah 3 says, the Lord your God is with you. 
He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So Christ longs to communicate with us, to lead us, to teach us. He pursues us when we stray because He's jealous. Don't we do the same thing to recapture the heart of someone we love if they've drifted away from us? We get angry when we know the person we love has a divided heart. Wouldn't God also be angry when we put something else or someone else in the center of our lives? More than anything, God wants our deepest devotion. In 1647, a British poet, Robert Herrick, wrote these words to convey that truth. Two simple lines. Christ requires still, wherever He comes, to feed or lodge, to have the best of rooms. Give Him His choice. Grant Him the noblest part. The best of all is the heart. The best of all is the heart. Being in Christ then and having Christ in us is a mystery, but it will be fully revealed one day. In the meantime, we cling to it as our guarantee and our hope. And this is critical to understand. Paul said in Colossians 1, Christ in us is our hope of glory. We are free from the law of sin and death because of His sacrifice and are heirs of the kingdom with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, It is God who has given me the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come, that is, a dwelling place in heaven. When God looks at our life's work on the great judgment day, those of us in whom Christ dwells believe that God will see the Holy Spirit within us, the same Spirit He breathed into us when we were saved, and will welcome us into His kingdom. Matthew Henry says, The ground of our hope is Christ in the Word of God, and the evidence of our hope is Christ in our heart. Jesus is in the Father, and we are in Jesus so we are safe. The conclusion to all of this is one simple truth. Christ wants to be found in our lives. <clears throat> and this leads us to our final observation, the one that helps everything else fall in place. And that is Christ through me, point three. We've already seen that Christ's Spirit lives in us, 1 John 3. For most of my life, I've been confused about what it means to have the Holy Spirit in me. I'm confessing, partly because the concept of the Trinity can be hard to grasp. I knew that the role of the Spirit is to teach us all things, John 14, to guide us into truth, John 16, and intercede for us when we don't know how to pray, Romans 8. But I had not fully made the personal connection between Jesus and the Spirit. Then one day recently, I read John 20, 21 to 22 describing one of Christ's final meetings with His disciples after His resurrection, and it all became clear. And here's what, here's what He said. Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent Me, I am sending you. And with that, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Like falling dominoes that quickly illuminated what Christ had said a few chapters earlier, in the book of John. He said in John 14, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. 
He lives with you and you and will be in you. And then Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So what the disciples received that day and what we receive upon our salvation is the Spirit of Jesus literally breathed into us. From that moment and forevermore, our own spirits are bound to His with a cord that simply cannot be broken. And what does this mean in terms of our daily lives? I think it means two things. The first is power. In Acts 1, 4-8, Jesus' last words before He ascended are recorded. He promised His disciples they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days and would receive power when that happened. We also receive that power, and with it, we serve Him, we make disciples, we perform miracles, and we forgive others. So while we relate to Christ in our inner beings, that relationship impels us to act. And the power to act comes from Christ's Spirit. We can talk all day about the good works we've done for Christ, but we must realize that every one of them is possible only through His power. And here I'm repeating myself from a few minutes ago. He gives us the gifts, the skills, the passions, and we choose to use them either for His glory or for our own glory. It's that simple. And then the second aspect of it is witness. As I said, you can't just tuck Christ away in a corner of your heart and live your life as you please. Rather, we are channels. We are channels for His Spirit and power and love to flow to those in need. He works through us to accomplish His purposes. We reflect His power and glory to the world. A helpful analogy for me has been to think of ourselves as a combination of window and mirror. We receive the glory of God into our souls as if the sun is shining through a window into our house. And then like a mirror, we reflect that glory to those around us. Window, mirror. It's not our own glory. We're simply the vessel for God to shine His own glory. As Ken read, we are a city on it. Sorry. As Ken read, we shine like stars to the rest of the world. And we're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. This is captured so well in a hymn called Not I But Christ. I wish we could sing this sometime by Thomas Chisholm. Here's just a couple of verses. Not I but Christ be honored, loved, exalted. Not I but Christ be seen, be known, be heard. Not I but Christ in every look and action. Not I but Christ in every thought and word. Not I but Christ in lowly, silent labor. Not I but Christ in humble, earnest toil. Christ, only Christ, no show, no ostentation. Christ, only Christ, the gatherer of the spoil. Earlier this month, Susan and I were talking to a hotel clerk in Tel Aviv toward the end of a four-day stay there. We've been discussing a snag of some kind in their reservation. Out of the blue, she said, why is it that you always seem so happy? I've never been asked that question before, and it's an important one. I thought for a moment before responding. After all, she was an Israeli Jew, and I didn't want to offend her. 
Then I said, it's because we're Christians. We don't follow Christ just in our thoughts, but in our hearts. It was one of those moments when I came to understand the truth that somehow, even through our weakness, God reveals himself to the world. We're poorly equipped for this task, of course, and there's a reason for that. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul said, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He is the potter. He designed the vessel. He created it. He fills it. And he uses it as he sees fit. So we're simply clay pots carrying it around wherever we go. What a privilege and what a responsibility is ours. You are the light of the world, Jesus said in Matthew 4. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul makes a statement that I claimed as my life verse many years ago. It's so critical. Thanks be to God, he says, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. He does it through us. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? So where does this leave us? It's all about something called human agency. When Christians reach out to each other to comfort in time of need, or to encourage, or to do good works, or to offer correction or hope, they are the hands and the feet of Christ. Christ can't literally stop by for a cup of coffee, but His servants can. And He sends them for just that purpose. So the phone rings in an hour of crisis, or a card arrives, or a friend says, I have a Bible verse to share with you. In reality, it's Christ saying, I just sent you a message. Can you see that it came from me? So the acts of friendship and ministry we receive or perform, whether to good friends, family members, or total strangers, are part of God's design for revealing Himself. We are His ambassadors in a dark world, offering a cup of water here and there in His name. May he find us worthy of our calling. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. I like to close in prayer and I like to say again another hymn, a great hymn of the faith, as our closing prayer. May the mind of Christ my Savior. Let's pray. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by His love and power controlling all I do and say. May the Word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through His power. May the peace of God my Father rule my life in everything that I may be calm to comfort sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea, Him exalting 
self-abasing. This is victory. May His beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win. And may they forget the channel, seeing only Him. Lord, whatever analogies we may come up with to humanly express this truth, thank You for coming into our hearts and our lives, protecting, leading, loving, and using us for Your glory. Amen.